This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Vicki Robin. Vicki is the co-author of the national bestseller, Your Money or Your Life, along with the late Joe Dominguez. Called The Prophet of Consumption Downsizers by the New York Times, Vicki has lectured worldwide on the subjects of reducing consumption and achieving financial independence. I spoke with Vicki about how limits relate to freedom, what constitutes genuine fulfillment, and what financial independence really means. Vicki, the 10th anniversary edition of Your Money or Your Life has come out this year, and I know that one of the key concepts is this idea of financial independence. What, what does that actually mean to you, financial independence? Mm, thanks for the question. Financial independence can mean, I mean, in most people's minds, it means I can, I can actually live the most expansive life I want to, and I will never have to worry about money again. Uh, and so, and that, you know, it could, actually, we have this image of, like, it's a gazillion dollars, you know, yachts and lifestyles of the rich and famous. And so, but we, what we mean in Your Money, Your Life about financial independence, it's several layers. It's actually disconnecting uh, successively more and more of your sense of well-being from the vagaries of the economy. And the first level of financial independence really would simply be unhooking your mind from the consumer messages. It's easy to say that and it's not so easy to do. But by being able to be aware of the messages that are coming in, to be aware of the story that it's telling you, you're not okay unless you get this product, to be able to have an internal yardstick for fulfillment unhook yourself from the Joneses and say, well, you know, I mean, they have a Lexus. Would that really make me happy? Happy in proportion to the amount of my life I'd invest in getting it. So being able to inquire uh, as the consumer messages come and really ask, does it work for me? Is that product or service or experience, is it going to take me where I want to go? Uh, unhooking from the envy that's that's generated, the sense of shame that's generated. You're not enough. You don't have enough. You don't look right. If we could just unhook our minds from the consumer culture and not stop consuming, but consume consciously, consume choicefully, consume what serves us and not a scrap more, uh, that would already be a layer of financial independence. It could, you could also call it financial bliss if we could do that. And then the next level would be getting out of debt, because if you're in debt, you're an indentured servant to the economy. You must be out there seeking a job. Very often it's not jobs that you want. It's not, you're not spending your time doing what you'd like. So being in debt makes you a, a servant to the economy. Getting yourself out of debt uh, means that you have more choice no matter what the economy is doing. You can do what you choose. Uh, and also getting out of debt means that you are not paying the normally about 15 to 20% surcharge on using other people's money. That would be the interest on your uh, consumer debt. Uh, so that means that if you're only paying the minimum on your, on your credit card, uh, eventually when you finally pay that item off, you probably will have paid two to three times what the item was actually priced at when you bought it. So it actually liberates more time from not only paying off your debt, but paying off the interest on your debt. So that's the next level. I mean, you can imagine that that would be, for many of us, it would be financial independence, if not bliss. Then the, the next level is having savings equal to uh, what I would recommend is six months of expenses. It, it, that means that at least three months of expenses. And, and that doesn't mean just you know sitting in the mattress or sitting in a in a checking account. It means, you know, sitting someplace where you can turn that uh, money in the bank into money in your hand. 
And if you have that, then then if you get laid off, and and we all know that we're at nominally 10% uh, unemployment, and now probably in terms of the discouraged workers, et cetera, we're, we're way above that. We're probably 15. And some states are actually at 15% uh, unemployment. So, so it means that if you are one of the unlucky who gets axed, and uh, if you think about the nonprofit world as well as the for-profit world, uh, more and more uh, foundations are limiting their funding, and so more and more organizations that are completely healthy in any other way has to have to lay people off. So I don't have to convince you of that, but if you have uh, money in the bank equal to three to six months of expenses, a layoff doesn't mean an instantaneous scramble. So that's And then the next level out is uh, competency. If the more you can do for yourself, the less your dependence on paying people a lot of money to do things for you. That doesn't mean doing everything yourself. I mean, we're not going to build our cars from scratch. But it means becoming ever more competent in areas of your life, being able to do the research, being able to learn how to turn the nut or bolt or whatever it is. That further empowers you to have a life you love, no matter what the economy does. And the next layer that we talk about as community is that uh, what we're looking for when we buy things with money is we're looking for well-being. We're looking for getting our needs met. Now, some of our needs can get met better through, through community exchange, whether it's with your family or your neighbors or through an alternative currency system or free cycle. The more you, you avail yourself of what is free right out there in the community for you, if you will but participate and also put some of your capacities and skills and stuff in your garage and community, then there's a whole layer of well-being that, that is simply person-to-person exchange. So all of those things, if you can bring that to mind, imagine a life like that where you have no debt, you are, have sovereignty over your own choices, you're not being influenced by the consumer culture, you have money in the bank that gives you a feeling of, of, of expansiveness, you're not, you're not going to die if, you don't, if you're not hooked into the consumer economy, that you have community and that you can do a lot of things for yourself, or at least, at least you know you could learn how. You have that and you have a lot. And then finally, financial independence for us is that you have that those savings are not just three or six months, that you have enough savings, that you're squirreling away 20% of your income year in, year out, and that piles up to a pile of money that could produce an income for you, just the money itself, passive income, equal to your expenses. And then you actually can be free of the job system, and, and you could still do the work that you love. You can do it for love, not money. You can do it for money and use that money for charity. Uh, or you can do things that you've, all, hobbies or travel, you can do things you've always dreamed of that are not lucrative. And so that would be finally the final level of, in, of financial independence. So that's the whole story of what we mean by that term. I, I can imagine listening to you that it's that final step that most people probably find both the most attractive and the most difficult to achieve. Right, and so, yes, it's attractive, um, and I have actually lived that way, well, for 40 years, and I'll tell you, it really is wonderful. Now, how much money a year are you living on? Well, at this ask, point, you, I'm living on about $25,000 a year. Right, so now that, I, I can imagine also a lot of people saying, well, I just don't, I don't know if I'm prepared to live on 25. That would be a huge change in my lifestyle to do that. For some people. Right. So, so I'm not asking people to live the way I do. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I have 40 years of experience at this. I, 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 you know, and I'm, I'm a manifester of the highest order. All I have to do is think about something that I really need, and it shows up in the thrift store. So I'm not expecting people to do what I do. And that the, the, the approach in your money or life, the steps in your money or life, are not designed to produce cookie-cutter Vicky Robbins. Um, and so, but what it is designed for is so that people can pay attention moment by moment to the flow of money and stuff through their lives and determine what part of that flow is essential for their survival, what part of the flow 
allows their lives to expand. It's necessary because they don't want to just survive. They want to thrive. And what part of that flow is our consumer items that, that are unforgettable, that they never lose their taste, you know, whether it's that perfect, you know, eco-tourism trip that you took to Costa Rica or whether it's the ultimate, you know, down code or it's a beautiful piece of art you put over your fireplace. Those are things that are really worth your life energy. But, but in observing this flow, you will see a portion of where you invest your life energy. And that's what we call money is life energy because you invest your life energy in getting it. And so when you spend it, you're spending your precious life energy, a portion of your literally in cosmic time blink in existence <laughs> so you have to make sure that that there's not you know whatever that stream is of stuff that goes through your life that doesn't really register on the happiness meter but that stuff will fall away and it's not an instantaneous thing so, you know we're always looking for a quick fix you know we want to read the article in the women's magazine and get six tips and be able to do it perfectly this sets up a process of observation that will go on your whole life, and it will be ever more refined. The first 20% of, of expenses that disappear are just the fluff. You know, it's the useless, unconscious stuff in your life. And we've studied people who've done this program, and indeed, 20% just falls away. Can you give me a sense of, of what that 20% is, what kinds what of things? What that 20% would be. Uh, well, one story is that a friend of mine, a good friend of hers died, and she went, uh, part, of the, part of the request, part of the will was, please have my friends come to my house and take what they want of what I have. And so my friend went, and she opened up a bureau drawer, and she found, a, I think, about up to two dozen white sweaters. And so you can imagine one white sweater, two white sweaters, three might be, you know, what you could use. But what were those two dozen about? And I've heard this story in repeated ways. You know, somebody else, um, when she started the program, discovered that she had uh, a closet full of blouses that many of them still had their tags on. And so you start to take a look at the things you spend money on when you're looking for something else. And um, this woman, you know, who knows what was her motivation, but there was something else going on. This spending was not about white sweaters. It was about uh, being ridiculed in high school, you know, for not having the right outfit. The woman who was bought all the blouses with still tags on them, she said she realized that every Friday she would go to the mall to reward herself for a hard week of work. So these blouses were an expression of the hard week at work. Now, so those are some examples. Another example is because because the thing that happens when you do this is you don't just like watch it, but you 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 uh, track it. <laughs> you know, whatever flow in your life you want to change, the way to put your hands on the steering wheel, the first act is to start to track what's going on in that domain. It doesn't matter whether it's money or time or food or your thoughts or uh, busyness, you just start to track. So you track, okay, how much do I spend for my morning coffee and mu uh, muffin you know, when I go to work? Um, and you start to see that you're spending $2,000 a year on coffee and muffins. Once you take a look at that, once you take a look at the aggregate of that particular behavior, nothing wrong with a coffee and muffin, you might decide that it is totally worth $2,000 a year. But you might decide that if you bought muffins in the grocery store, they would be a quarter of that. And then you just put one in a bag every day. Okay, now let's pause for a moment. This idea of tracking all the money that I spend. I mean, you said the, the process of your money or your life, this process of becoming financially independent begins with observation and tracking. Right. And now I'm tracking everything. I mean, the idea of that is about as appealing to me as, you know, <laughs> sticking needles in my eyes or cleaning out the garage. I mean, it just sounds terrible. It sounds terrible. It really does. And so, uh, you know, what can I say about this? 
it sounds terrible to me too. I just have to say that I didn't. Okay, I, did I feel, feel a little years. better now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not like you know. I mean, there's people who take to this program like ducks to water, and I've noticed that they're engineers and quilters. Mm-hmm. You know, there's people who like to make things precise, orderly, and and fit together seamlessly. Um, and then for the rest of us, uh, we have to understand that this process is going to get us more of what we really want. Um, you know, when you save money because you want to go on a vacation, you don't want to save that money, but you want the vacation. So every week you put your $10 in the bank and whatever it is, because you're saving up for something that you want. If you don't have the vacation out there, when you think, oh, I should save, you think, yeah, I should save or I should go buy the blouse. You know, blouse is, is immediate gratification. Saving is like, well, maybe I'll never get old. So you start to put in, you start to pay attention to what you want more than having more stuff. What do you really want in your life? And this is a key to this whole approach is that you strengthen your, your bond with your vision for your life, you think about, you know, okay, so I'm devoting all this money to my coffee muffins, <laughs> whatever. What do I really want to devote my life energy to? Well, I have, you know, three nieces and two nephews. I would love to spend time with my nieces and nephews. I have, um, I, I never get to read a book. I would love to read a book. And as a matter of fact, I have I'm, I'm saying not I, I don't have three nieces and two nephews, you know, but I'm just saying examples of, of desires, you know, that you, you pick up, you know, from Nancy Pearl, who's, who's in Seattle, who wrote Book Luster. You pick up, you know, what are the hundred books you want to read before you die? So, so this tracking becomes linked not to, you know, this sort of sticking needles in your eyes. It becomes linked to... I want my time back. I want to be doing what I want to be doing. And I can wish and hope for it. I can, you know, I can start to uh, go on Match.com and hope I marry a rich guy. I can do all sorts of la-la land strategies, or I I can realize that I can reshape my financial life to better serve my deepest desires and goals. Now, uh, now a complexity to this. One reason why it makes no sense to people in our era is that we have credit cards. So with credit cards, you don't have to save up for things. You just put it on the card and you think, well, sometime in the future I'll pay for it, or, you know, I'll just take out life insurance. My life insurance will pay for it. Uh, Or I'll just die destitute. So what? You know, or my relatives, when I go, will pay for it. You know, somebody will pay for it, but it's not going to be me now. So we have a tool for uh, instant gratification that, that obscures the fact that we have only a few hours, actually, on this planet. Let's say we have, you know, 75 years of life. That's a hard thing for me to think about since I'm 64. That's a little close, but just for... Well, for the sake of the conversation, let's say we have 85 Yeah, for the years. sake of the conversation, let's say I'm, I'm gone at 75. So uh, a third of that, 25 years, I'm going to spend sleeping. That's, it's an awesome thing to think about, but I will. A third of your life you spend sleeping. Now, probably another third of that, another 25 years, is going towards, quote-unquote, daily life. Daily life would be, of course, it's, you know, your job, but it's also, you know, getting up in the morning, brushing your teeth, you know, getting dressed, taking a shower, <laughs> getting in the car. You know, it's all that stuff. It's, 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 it's uh, two to three meals a day, cooking and cleaning, or, you know, maybe you go out to restaurants all the time, you know, because you don't want to do the cooking and cleaning. But it's, you know, cleaning your house, you know, taking the car in to get the gas, the oil changed. It's all this stuff called daily life. Really, daily life will take at least 25 years. And, you know, daily life isn't bad. It's your life, you know. How we spend our days is how we spend our lives, as Annie Dillard said. Then there's, there's this other 25 years that is your discretionary spending for your life. And into those years will fit. Um, well, actually, you know, there's another, 
<laughs> there's another at least 18 years that are spent just getting ready for life, maybe, you know, just growing up. So there's some small portion of your life that is your discretionary life. It's the life into which fits all the loving, all the relating, all the learning about yourself and growing, all the meditating, all the traveling, all the, uh, all the art, all the theater, all the reading books. All of that is going to fit in that. So it's not an endless thing. It's not like, you know, when I get around to it or like I always mean to spend time with my nieces and nephews, but I just don't have time. What I'm encouraging is, and this tracking is merely a tool. It's not virtue. It's just a tool. It's a tool to become aware of what you are actually doing with your one wild and precious life. And a piece of that is going to be, you know, saying, I need at least three hours a day of hanging out, of writing in my journal, taking a walk, you know, just noodling around, as Brenda Eulen said. You know, that's what a writer has to do. You just have to hang out because the ideas don't come on cue. So if you determine you need that, where is that going to come from? You know, for your for your muse, hanging out for the waiting for the muse to come, that comes from somewhere because life is limited, uh, and so you start to realize that by becoming aware of the flow of stuff through your life, or the flow of appointments, or the flow of food, when you becoming aware of those things and realizing which things contribute to your well-being and which don't, you actually buy back portions of your life. Does that make it any more appealing, Tammy? Well, it creates motivation. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, that's the thing. It's creating motivation, and it's turning desire into motivation, into action. Uh-huh. Because maybe, maybe, you know, we started out talking about financial independence, and you said, well, you know, everybody wants that one where you have enough money and you don't have to worry about it. But somehow we have to get from point A, you know, trapped in daily life, to point B, free. So what is that pathway? I mean, some people would stick pins in their eyes if they were told that they had to watch their breath for an hour a day. Um, so... We're willing to do practices in service to our aspirations, mm-hmm. um, or else we're just not telling the truth. Yeah, I mean, I want to be—I want to be able to ride in a rodeo. I want, you know, and I could say that every morning. But if I don't get on a horse, I'm never going to get to the rodeo. Yeah. So, so tracking is like getting on the horse. Now, I want to go back for a moment to this idea of financial independence. Because I think when most people hear that term, they think of living on a huge amount of money that they have somehow. Like, I'm financially independent, so I don't have any limits anymore. Not, I've saved enough money so I can live on $25,000 a year, like you're describing. I think the way it's sort of portrayed in our culture, this idea of, oh, you know, that person's independently wealthy, then that means they can kind of jet wherever they want to go, and they don't have any, you know, they're not in this small constrained world anymore and I think that's why I responded when I asked you you know how much money you were living on as a financially right. independent person so I'm curious what you think about that idea <laughs> um, great I, I know it's not funny but it's funny to me um, well I think that uh, maturation is the capacity to understand and shape the limits in your life. That, that immature um, consciousness wants it all now. Never have to work, never have to worry. I one time did a training where they, they said, okay, we have, we have a system for actually having no worries ever again in your life. And it's called a uh, saline bath, and we're just going to, like, cut you open, take out like, all your organs. We'll, we'll have a breathing machine, and you can just float there. In other words, life is complexity. Life is, uh, I mean, the Buddha said it's suffering. I, I think it's, it's at least dealing with competing uh, desires, 
competing values, competing needs. It's dealing with the the dynamic between your desires and your fears. You know, it's 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 a if you will, I mean some people would say this, it's a school for self-knowledge and knowledge of what is this thing called life anyway. And I don't think that life is a breeze. Life is fabulous. It's enjoyable. It's fascinating, but it's not a breeze. And um so I think the I think that what you're talking about, which is so common, I'm not critiquing it, is that desire to almost go back to the womb and be completely taken care of. Like, money will do it all for me. I don't have to think. I don't have to worry. uh, Because no matter what, I'll have enough money. Yes, we all want that. However, I don't think that's the life a conscious person really wants. I think a conscious person wants to be conscious and aware. And when you become conscious and aware, you understand that there's suffering in the world. There's complexity. There's there's uh, limitation, actually. So a piece of my work, actually, Tammy, over the years has been, can I, can I develop a language, a way of understanding limits, such that Americans would fall in love with limits the way we've fallen in love with freedom? How's that working for you? Well, I've done it. <laughs> it's, it's, it actually undergirds everything. And, and basically, what I say is that there is no freedom without limits. We wouldn't have a word freedom if there were no limits. Number one, because every word comes into being because it has some contrast. It, it's necessary to distinguish something in life. So freedom distinguishes something against the background of some sense of limitation or constraint. If you had no constraints, this is how the universe would go. The universe would come into being and it's gone because there's no constraining force. The constraining forces in our lives are what shape our lives, for better or worse, richer or poorer. What we want is not no limits. We want sovereignty over the limits in our lives. We don't want to be told what to do, but we want to be able to choose. And if you understand that a material level, like the, you know, our bodies are material, they are born and die. At a material level, nothing is limitless. At a spiritual level, at an intellectual level, you know, thing, it's, life is vast. It's vast. But at a material level, it's limited. That's the world we live in. That's why the Buddha called it suffering. So learning to live within limits is actually the re- refinement of your character. It is being able to direct your life and say where it's going to go. You define the banks of the river through which life is going to flow. And you define them according to what? According to your purposes, according to your dreams and desires. You know, but you get to say, to, to, what, to a great degree, what those limits are. Now, you can't say, okay, I think I'm going to, like, in my little world, I'm not going to have gravity. I think I'll, do, I'll, I think I'll get rid of gravity. There's some limits that are natural limits. And a piece of that is because we're not the only people here, <laughs> you know, despite the fact that we're all pretty narcissistic. Not you, not me, but everybody else. Yeah. You know, despite narcissism, you know, our narcissism says, basically, we're the only people here. I'm the only person here, and everything else is a stage set, and all the people are extras. And so, and, and so I get to do what I want, but mature function is understanding that you fit into a larger whole, which is a great relief because you belong. And it's a great relief because you have some function in the larger whole. You don't just belong, but you have a function. You have a, a piece of the picture. You have something you have to give. And it's, it's sort of, you know, your life is like unwrapping a present. What is it that's mine to give? What is it that's mine to have so that I can give what, is mine to give. Mm-hmm. So you start to discover your place in things. So there are natural limits. There's social limits. You know, there's legal limits. And all of these things exist so that we can be in harmonious relationship. You know, so the more you think about it, the more you realize that, oh, I get it. Everything that I cherish, everything that I cherish has a boundary to it has a beginning, middle, and end. 
everything I cherish, not my spiritual evolution, but everything I cherish has a boundary. And that boundary protects the quality of that which I cherish, my house. If I didn't put locks on the doors and I lived, you know, in an unsafe neighborhood, pretty soon the stuff in my house would not be mine anymore. Somebody else would have taken it. So I need to, in some ways, you know, maintain the boundaries of that which is precious to me. Our values, our values are defined by our yeses and nos, by establishing boundaries. This is what I will do and this is what I won't. Our integrity is established by boundaries. You know, you can count on me to do this for you. So we are actually, in our daily lives, unless we're just sort of like sitting, you know, lying on the couch with the clicker, we are always in relationship with the limits and boundaries of our existence and to become aware of those and choiceful. Um, and even the ones that are fixed, you say, okay, in my world, um, I'm going to have gravity. I think gravity would be a great idea. You know, so you say yes to the things that you cannot change. This is the serenity prayer. So what I'm saying is that this dream of financial independence is never having to deal with anything unpleasant because you have enough money for it is a piece of, of an immature mind. And I'm not saying that negatively. I'm not saying, oh, immature bad mature good but it's but but basically the task of our times is maturation the task of our times is to learn to live within limits because we are beyond the limits i I think what you're saying is so important I, i think that the reason that i asked you know sarcastically or glibly how's that going for you teaching about limits and money is that it just seems especially when it comes to money especially people who are interested in some kind of financial program of some kind, they're drawn to it because what they originally want is this idea of more money than they could possibly ever need. So you're sort of going against, it seems, a lot of the current in our society, which I think it must be immature, to use your language. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the immaturity is that you mature as you bump into things in life. You know, you bump into something that wasn't supposed to be there. Then you have to deal with it. You know, why is it here? How do I feel in relationship to it? What do I really want? Is this here to protect me? Is this here for me to grow? You know, we have this idea of, you know, we like the sky's the limit, and now with space travel, even the sky is not the limit. So we have this idea of up, up, and away, and out. And so every, you know, the new age teaches us going beyond all limits, you know, the limiting, you know, consciousness. And I agree with that 100%. We really need to, if you have a limiting consciousness, (laughs) my recommendation would be that you track your thoughts and that you just see what's going on in there about the limits that you've imposed and see which ones you choose. Some of the limits that you choose might be when you hear yourself saying in your head, oh, I could never do that. Well, you think about it, and and if it's about bungee jumping, you think, okay, you know, it would take a huge amount of life energy to to get me to bungee jump. (laughs) So actually, I could never do that. So that's a limit that I choose. It is this, it's a quality of learning from your life experience what life really is about, what you are made of, and what's really precious to you. And as you go along, you start to realize that the coffee and muffin, pleasant though it may be, not having to, you know, bring the muffin from home, these are, these are sort of the small pleasures in life. But what really, what really do you want your life to be about? And that will evolve too. So... So this awareness, this idea of, you know, having just enough, everything you want and need and that would make your life wonderful but nothing in excess, that is actually not a point. I call it the enough point, but it's an enough spiral. It's, it's a constant inquiry in relation to existence. Hmm. Does this thing, is this part of my enough or is this part of my useless too much? It's ongoing. I know that in my own life, my purposes have evolved as I've evolved. 
And I noticed that in my 20s, I wanted something different than I want now in my 60s. And that's all okay, because what's been consistent is my attention to what do I really want, really want. So I, I don't know if I've, I've elaborated in a useful way here, but... Um, you have, uh, and, and I know also, Vicki, that you've done a certain amount of inquiry and research into the question of human fulfillment and what we know about what actually creates genuine human fulfillment. Not necessarily our ideas about what might fulfill us, but what actually fulfills us. And can you share some of that with us? Yeah. um, Studies of human happiness, uh, and there's been many, and the whole field of positive psychology is actually a growing field um, because people, despite all that we have in this, we have access to in this culture, um, the happiness quotient is, is not going up. So there's great interest in what makes humans happy. And what has been discovered is one thing is fairness. And that's a really interesting, would not be the first thing you think about. But whether you consider your lot in life, what you have, what you do, what you've achieved, whether you consider that sort of in balance with other people like you, you know, whether it's your neighbors or people from your social class or people with your education, what creates dissatisfaction is, you know, when you go back to your high school reunion and you notice that, you know, so-and-so is now a multimillionaire and you're still doing a secretarial job. Then your secretarial job, which yesterday when you were at the office was great because you love everybody at the office and it's all going well, then your secretarial job is one down. So a lot of our consumption is about is about status and belonging about you know where you are in the pecking order it's it's about power relations Mm -hmm. Uh, so if you feel powerful sufficiently powerful in society as a whole then you have an experience of contentment you're not worried about you know what you have do or be Uh, another one is good friends And good friends actually come before family, which is really interesting, because your family may not be your friends. Your family is your family, and you can maybe count on them in a pinch. But your friends are the people who who witness your existence and support you in in feeling okay about yourself and going forward in the things that you want. So having people that you can confide in, uh, and I don't have the statistics right now, but there is an increasing number of people who have no one to confide in, or maybe one person. And that that's a decreasing number over time. People had more in the past, and they have fewer now. So it's having that kind of friendship. And then another one is being in a community that nourishes you. And and it's it's hard right now because, you know, our communities are our online communities, you know, our, our six listers that we're on, or, um, you know, the things, the newsletters we've signed up for that come into our inbox. We don't, we have virtual communities, but not real communities. Uh, and, um, and people treat their jobs like a community, but it's not really a community because you can get a pink slip and then you're ostracized, which is extremely painful for humans. So being inside a, a social, legal, human system, that you feel are there for you, that's a huge element of happiness. Good health, good health is crucial. For many people, it's number one. And uh, so those are some of the factors that have been determined are part of happiness. There's some recent research that I came across that just has knocked my socks off, that um, basically there's been research that's been done about discretionary spending and that... If you spend money on experiences versus spending money on things, that you're happier spending money on experiences than things because deeper than that is you're happier spending money on other people than you are on yourself. You know, that if you buy a present for someone, that will give you happiness for a longer time. That gives a feeling, a good feeling inside, longer than if you um, necessarily buy something for yourself. Because it, 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 well, whatever that is, you know, we're social beings. 
uh, and it may be an element of that is just simply, you know, fostering your sense of belonging. But so basically they found that if you spend money on experiences, very often those experiences are done with other people and that when you see those people again, you remember the experience. So there's a renewal of the happiness again and again. If you spend money on things, money spent on things is very often money spent to, you know, beyond survival level, money spent for status uh, or belonging mm-hmm. um, or, you know, being part of the clan. Now, it seems that there is one, one thing we have to dig into here because, you know, when it comes to friendship and community and th- those are, are things that I have a lot of control over in my life. I can magnetize friends in a community, whether or not I have money, it doesn't matter. But when it comes to this other question of fairness, I go to my, you know, high school reunion and blah, blah, blah. And this person has inherited $10 million and this other person's working in the financial services and is making all this money. And I compare my intelligence to these other people. And I think, wait a second, this doesn't feel very fair. And then right, I get all exactly. wrapped up in how much money I'm making or not mm-hmm. making. Yeah, so, I mean, what, what, what that means is that despite sort of an inherent unfairness in the system we live in, because the system we live in, it, it, the studies have been done of, of, of happiness in our culture, and it, it actually shows that happiness, because there's an annual survey uh, that's done, I think, out of Minnesota, um, and one of the things, a social survey, and one of the things they measure is happiness. And our happiness peaked in 1957, sort of, sort of stayed at a plateau until about the early 70s, and then it's been falling off some. So we've reached the peak of the happiness curve. And if you think about that, there was, a, a, you know, coming out of World War II, there was a commitment to fairness in society that everybody was getting prosperous together. There was a... a um, progressive income tax, people at the higher end were were paying way more than people at the lower end because there was an understanding coming out of the Second World War that we're all in this together. And we all won the war. And and we're we we we're still traumatized by the depression and, you know, people at the top and bottom, people who had millions of dollars and people who had very you know, had a farm, all of them were affected. So everybody had a deep need to become prosperous together. And it, what it did is it built the middle class. Now, of course, I rebelled against that, but it was a backdrop of my life. I didn't have to build that. That was there for me. And that actually was a foundation out of which I could you know, bust out and, and, and start to explore the world. But the middle class held that sense of fairness in it. And so uh, then when we, in the Reagan years, when we started to change the tax laws and started to disassemble this, then it permitted a split, a diminishment of the middle class, and people in the middle class were still desperately running to stay in place, you know, putting two people in the household in paid employment. Um, and even though it seemed like a win for the women's movement, it actually means that, and for many women, it, you know, paid work has been a way to, to develop themselves beyond their wildest dreams. It also means that everybody in the household is stressed because everybody is scrambling in the money economy. So the way we, we maintained this sense that there was something called the middle class is we, we worked, each worker worked longer hours, and there were more than one worker in the family. And so the family life, that um, well of well-being, which is family life, being held and nurtured in a, in a healthy family, being listened to, being, you know, having somebody who puts you to bed and makes your dinner and is there when you come home for your lunch when you're seven, you know, that kind of thing that I had when I was a kid, that disappeared in service to this promise that everyone could get rich. Not everyone has enough. Everyone, you know, and only some people seem to be doing it, and that split grew and grew and grew until now we see the result of it. Now people who are considered themselves middle class, who got the education, who got the BA, the master's, and even the PhD, are not being able to make it in the society that we've defined. And, and they are being axed from their jobs for no, no good reason other than the company needs to make more profit. 
so so that feeling so if you think about that process then you realize that here we are in the land of plenty that everybody in the world envies really you know with people with magnificent yachts and and jets etc like that and that you know that image you used that image before i could jet around (laughs) just like the rich people um that there is a sense of desperation and despair uh an increasing fear that is in our midst. You know, Michael Moore investigated that in Bowling for Columbine. Why is it in this wealthiest of nations that we have this experience of fear, that we actually feed fear as part of our identity, and that there are other societies where people live perfectly happy, happily, and they don't have that same sense of fear. They have more of a sense of fairness. So what do I do? in the midst of that piece of the happiness formula that I don't seem to be able to control, or maybe I'm contributing to movements that are in some way trying to rebalance the accounts, the, the take back your time movement or some of the environmental movements. You know, there's many movements, social justice movements, that are trying to rebalance the accounts. What I do is I develop this financial independence I was talking about that isn't about having a zillion dollars, it's about unhooking your mind from the consumer culture. So you go to your high school reunion and you see the person who's made out like a bandit and you haven't, and you watch your mind. You say, I, right now, standing here, like five minutes ago, in the last conversation I was feeling fine about myself. In this conversation, I'm just, I'm beginning to feel like a dish rag. I'm starting to feel like I'd like to leave or at least, you know, go to the bathroom and see if my lipstick is all over my teeth. You know, it's just like you start to feel terrible about yourself. And if the task is to intercept that and to be able to re- go like, yeah, that person did that. Now, what do I actually think about my choices? I like the choices I've made. So that's the internal yardstick for fulfillment, and that's why this culture with so much unfairness in it and others you know it's becoming like uh you know despite all the efforts of our our current administration to rebalance the accounts it is it has some of the qualities of the the less just cultures i mean if you take a look at the imprisonment of african americans it's astonishing so we have qualities we we actually for all we value justice, we have qualities in this country that are highly unjust, and most other Western developed countries have solved these problems. The sickness care system, not considering sickness care, because I don't call it health care because your body is health care. Your body is a magnificent health-producing machine or system. Why is it that we can't consider um, sickness care a right of all citizens. So that's a piece of the unfairness. What do we do in the midst of that? We really do need to anchor ourselves in our own sense of our values, our purpose, um, noticing all of the non-material ways that uh, that we make ourselves happy, and actually that most of our happiness comes from experiences and giving, as these studies have shown, not from getting stuff for ourselves or proving that we're better than other people. That those those things are are often a byproduct of the money system we live in, the financial system and money system and economic system we live in, because everything is so monetized that that how are we going to hold our heads up in the world as it is? Well, we think it's it's going to be through something that we can buy, <laughs> something material, because we're struggling to take part in the life of the of the whole. We're struggling to find our place in things. And if if the system is only giving us an opportunity to establish our identity and our contribution through things that we buy and money that we earn, then we start to ignore that which truly makes us happy that is not in the material realm and consequently undermines our sense of happiness. So so you're absolutely right. I mean, we are that particular piece, that fairness piece uh, we have to work for fairness in society, but also work within to unhook ourselves from the envy and shame of these kinds of unequal social relations. 
Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. I think it's a really important point that you're making. Just as a, a final question, Vicki, I know that your interest in financial independence and your money or your life is you know, obviously about uh, individuals, but it's also about change at a societal and global level. And I'm wondering if you can just make for us that connection in a very explicit way. How is it mm. that the way we handle our own money creates change in the world? Mm. Well, there's many levels of that question about how we spend our money or our relationship with money and the outcomes for the collective. I mean, one thing is is that we vote with our dollars, clearly. So what we spend money on, what we invest ourselves in, is actually what we're voting to have more of in the world. And so this, this noxious... <laughs> this noxious idea of tracking every penny or tracking every dollar or tracking every $10, whatever you're tracking, it's really a way to say, you know, what is it that I'm investing my life energy in? What is it that I'm demonstrating? What is it am I teaching to the world about what's important? So that's one thing, is that your life, your money life is like just like your life life, uh, is a teaching and is a, is a steering mechanism. Uh, the second thing, I think, is that people ask when in the past, and now, too, well, what if everybody did this? What if everybody dropped 20% of their expenses just naturally? What if everybody lived frugally? Wouldn't it ruin the economy? And uh, my contention is that we live in an economy that is like a predator on the natural systems. And we are in this condition where we are spending more of the ecological capacity of the planet every year than can be regenerated. And so there is some sense, and that is by about 25% now. Uh, we just need another quarter planet somehow every year. I don't know where we're going to get it, but we need it. Uh, so imagine that that, 25% is exactly the 25% of un, unneeded consumption that, that is flowing through our personal lives. In some way, that number relates. Now, I'm not, I can't draw it directly, like, you know, if you don't drink your coffee, then the coffee farmers in Colombia, blah, blah, blah. I can't draw it directly, but I'm saying that we are over budget collectively. And so we collectively, especially the over-consumers, in the north um, and the wealthy in the south need actually to moderate their consumption. This is a very tough thing to teach anybody who thinks it's their right to consume, it's right to consume, and it's their money, and you can't tell me what to do with it. But if we could voluntarily uh, have people choose because their well-being depends on ceasing certain behaviors, uh, if they could choose that, then, then, then we could live, actually, within the means of the earth in some way. Balancing those accounts, getting it to be fair, all of that is very complex. But in some way, that excess needs to go. Uh, another thing is that I'm working now with, uh, locally in, on Whidbey Island. Uh, I helped to start and, uh, and maintain an organization called Transition Whidbey, where into our third year now, uh, which has uh, been inspired by the whole uh, way of thinking about relocalization, that in the context of climate change and, and, and uh, resource depletion, water depletion, uh, unstable, uh, unstable economies around the world, peak oil, and in light of all this, that we need to take greater responsibility for resource flow through our community. It's not pulling up the drawbridge and saying, you know, the rest of the world can take care of themselves, but it, it does put back on the shoulders of uh, communities, a place, to consider what we're dependent on the big global systems for and how we are going to take care of ourselves should those systems become more disrupted, which I would guarantee that they are going to become more disrupted. Uh, and so we need to start to take that into account. So this whole transition movement or relocalization movement is about communities taking responsibility for resource flow just the way your money or your life 
uh, allows individuals to take responsibility for resource flow. And it's really resource flow in relation to what, what do we value as a community? What makes my little town of Langley, Langley? What makes Whidbey Island, Whidbey Island? What makes life wonderful here? How do we have enough, if not surplus, of what makes life wonderful, even if the ferries stop running? <laughs> because we, we're an island, you know, and I don't think the ferries are going to stop, but they may be constrained uh, if there were more in the Middle East and, and, and certain oil supplies that we rely on were no longer available to us, you better believe that the military is going to commandeer more of the oil supplies. And we're, the rest of us are going to have to figure out how to moderate consumption. So we may have fewer ferries. In that situation, how do we continue to have a wonderful life? I think this is a crucial question. You know, our culture has cultivated hyper-individualism. And hyper-individualism says, me, first, second, third, and last, me alone, I'm going to do it. I can do it, I'm going to do it, and that's why we all feel so busy, because we think we have to do it all ourselves. And it says it's hyper-competition, you know, like it's a, it's a world of all against all. And if I'm not scrambling to get to the top of the mountain, I'm going to lose, because nobody's there for me. So we really need to make this shift from me to we to be able to say that my well-being in, in a certain degree, I don't know, you know, 10%, 20%, 50%, my well-being at a certain degree depends on the well-being of my community. That is, the only, that is my strategy for well-being is collective well-being. Mm-hmm. It's not about personal well-being. And so we have a collective task, and this is really what undergirds all of my work now which is we need collectively, individually, collectively, in small groups, large groups, to devote ourselves to learning to live well together within the means of the earth. That is the task of our times. If we don't complete that task, we are going to be in disruptions that we really do not want to be in. There's many strategies for that, and that's where all the creativity comes from. Like, how are we going to do that? That's a game. That's a game worth playing. Uh, and so these community relocalization or transition groups are, are a way, are a context for that kind of work. Look, working in local government is a context. Working in local service organizations is a context. But our transition group here on Whidbey Island uh, has devoted ourselves to catalyzing our community to work together toward greater resilience. You know, so we're trying to bring together all of these different elements that are committed to community well-being and create a synergistic whole that's working consciously towards you know, water conservation and um, a farming system, not just, you know, not just home gardens or CSAs, but a farming system on the island where the farmers are collaborating so that, that they're growing exactly what the community needs in the right proportions. And working on local business, cultivating local businesses, whether they're Internet-based or whether they're, you know, there's their actual storefronts, you know, stores. But, you know, how do people prosper more locally? And how can we become less dependent on, you know, whatever it is, percentage of the island that gets on the ferry in the morning so that they can go to work in Seattle? How can we live well here? So we're engaged actively. We've developed a local currency that's beginning to take hold actively in that question of, of taking responsibility for resource flow at the level of the community. Um, so these are some ways where this, this whole system's approach to the flow of money and stuff through your life, that, that is that your money, your life approach, tracking, looking for pattern, evaluating, understanding the, that there are certain limits to uh, your life energy, and reshaping your life around what matters most. That approach... Uh, having learned that in your personal life, you can bring that to your community life or to the life of the organizations that you're in. And it's a very exciting time to be engaged in this. It's a, it's a scary and creepy time <laughs> because we're, we're really up against it. But as I said earlier, that's maturation. Maturation at the level of the species is how we're going to live well together here on our one little home. So mm-hmm. that's how... And if you want to probe that further, I'm happy to to talk about it. But there's many levels there where you can see how your 
personal transformation actually contributes to your capacity to be part of the larger picture. Thank you, Vicki, for being with us on Insights at the Edge. We're here talking about the 10th anniversary edition of Your Money or Your Life, and Sounds True has also published an original audio adaptation of Your Money or Your Life with Vicki Robin, available at SoundsTrue.com. For listeners who would like more information on the work of Vicki Robin, including a new teleclass series that she's offering, you can visit YourMoneyOrYourLife.info. Again, YourMoneyOrYourLife.info for more information about the work of Vicki Robin. And again, if you're interested in the audio of Your Money or Your Life, a new updated edition that's available from SoundsTrue.com. Thank you for listening. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.